Today I'm going to talk to men. Next week I'm going to talk to women. And we'll close out our series with two messages after that addressing both couples. And so I'm excited today. We're going to look at how men can lead in their families. And, and truth be known, if you were to ask yourself this question, men, am I doing a good job of leading? There are probably times you're doing a really good job. And so we affirm that. And there are probably times that you need to do a better job. And, and throughout this message today, you might, there might be times that you're convicted. There might be times that you're really, really angry with me. I don't care. Uh, you've been angry before. Uh, and, but truth needs to be spoken. And there'll be some times that uh, you might be really, really convicted to make some change in your life. That's my goal, is as we look at Scripture, what does Jesus say about leading our wives? Not what the world says. I mean, look at the world's standards. Sometimes you look at the world and, and someone walks through a dark time in their marriage or they make it five years and they say, well, at least they made it five years. <laughs> like, where in the world does that become a good standard for marriage? It comes from the world. Or if you're about to marry someone and you go to marry someone and they want to have a prenuptial agreement before you get married. Now listen to me, ladies. You're about to marry a man and he wants to do a prenup with you and he's already talking about divorce before you're even married. Get out. Get out. I mean, that is, that's, a, that's a worldly concept. It's not a godly concept. In, in most cases, there's extreme cases where that might be. There might be an exception, but you're probably not the exception. And so that, that's just, just strange to me. But even when we think about marriage, God has given us an example in Scripture how we're supposed to, be remain, how we're supposed to remain married. And, and, he, and I, want, I want to visualize that with you today. Let's take a, take a look at what we're going to talk about. I think that if we were truly honest, that if you look at Scripture and you look at Scripture, we're supposed to keep Jesus, not duct tape Jesus, but Jesus at the center of your relationship. So just for a metaphor today and a visual, duct tape Jesus will work today. Stole this from Rich's office, by the way. He has these things everywhere. It's just his, he loves Jesus figurines. Um, Jesus, um, duct tape Jesus. But anyhow, think about this today. This is an analogy of marriage I want to run to you today. We're supposed to keep Christ at the center of your marriage. In order for marriage to be healthy, in order for marriage to have the Christ blessing, Jesus blessing, keep him at the center. So suppose in this marriage that somewhere along the line you get to meet each other and you say hi and they say hi and you say, hey, let's get married. Okay, let's get married. And so she meets him and they, she becomes wife and he becomes husband. The goal in any relationship, whether you're married or single, is to become more like Christ. So it, suppose in this relationship, this wife decides that she wants to become more Christ-like. And so she's working up towards Jesus. And as she works up to Jesus, she's becoming more like Jesus. And she's getting closer and closer and closer to Jesus. I mean, they're just close. And she's spending time with them. She's ministering. She's serving. She's praying. She's, she's, she's being kind. She has the fruit of the Spirit. But in this relationship, if he's not advancing towards Christ, the distance between them, wife and husband, remains the same down, even as it was when they began, because he's not getting closer to Jesus. She can get as close as she can. She gets closer to Jesus, but the relationship distance between each other remains the same. Same will be true if the husband decides, you know what? He's got this, this streak in his life, and he's becoming more like Jesus, and he's hungry, and he's growing, he's growing, he's growing, he's growing, he's growing, he's growing and she isn't growing. The same distance. It's still, they aren't any closer. He's closer to Jesus, but she isn't. A healthy marriage looks like this, where both grow. They work their way up to Jesus. They get to know Jesus. They get to know Jesus. And the closer they get, 
to Jesus, the closer they get to each other. And, then, and they really love each other. That's the picture of a healthy relationship. But truth be known, many times in relationships, some of us are about here, it's a little closer. Because she's more advanced in her walk. He's kind of tailing behind a little bit. But they're getting closer. But it could be so much better if they just got closer to Jesus. That's the goal. The goal in any marriage and relationship is to become more like Christ. And the closer you both get to him, the closer you both become to each other. So you can look in this room. Sometimes it's real easy. You have one, one spouse, the husband, that he's working his way up. And, I mean, he's on fire. It's like, I mean, you spend time with him and you just overload it with Jesus. And then his wife is. And it's, but when he gets home, there's this distance that's there. Same be true for the wife. So the goal is to work together. And as you get together, the closer you are with each other. A husband is supposed to lead. What is a leader? What's the word lead mean? It's a word that's maybe sometimes overused in our world because it's not used well. The word lead means in a relationship is to be the scout, to be the one out front. You go explore and say, hey, we're going in this direction. Hey, don't go there. That's unsafe. You take risk. You're out front exploring. She's not exploring. You're exploring. The word lead means to influence your wife, to influence those around you, become an inspiring influence as a leader. The word lead means first one in. That means you're the first one into trouble. Bankruptcy knocks on your door. You're standing in. You're taking the heat for the family. First one in means this is a direction. A bullet or attack comes upon your home. You're the first one in taking the bullet. First one in. That's what a leader does. That's what a godly husband should do. But that wasn't the case in the beginning. Grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. And the ushers will be glad to put one in your hand. Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to encourage men to take notes today. Because this is a message for you, husbands. This is a message for you. Those men are thinking about marrying one day. This is for you. So, if you don't have a pen and your wife is taking notes, take the pen from her. Take the note page from her. Wives, you're not taking notes for him. He's supposed to be leading. Now, guys, look down, you're out. If there's a husband there, he's not taking notes, and the wife is, beat him up right now. Just beat him up in the name of Jesus. I'm serious. Look down, you're out. Anybody's not taking notes, he's not leading, beat him up. Take his lunch money and kick him out of here, okay? <laughs> Genesis chapter 3. If you've never been with us before, I'm sorry. You're, you, you you're going to be in for a, 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 a treat today. Genesis chapter 3. Stand with me. We're going to read it together. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 and verses 1 through 7. Let's look at this first model. Adam and Eve are the first married couple. Temptation comes upon them. Look what happens. Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 7. Let's read it together. Ready? Read. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, 
She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Let me have a seat. Grab your ink pen, guys. I'm serious. Grab your pen. Grab your Bible. Genesis chapter 3. We have our video camera scanning right now. See who gets beat up. Genesis chapter 3. Right from the beginning, right from the beginning, Adam and Eve are together. Temptation comes. A serpent comes. And the serpent is about to try to deceive Adam and Eve. And he does, by the way. In fact, look what happens. The serpent comes, he looks at the woman, he says, you could have this, you could be wise, you could have, your eyes could be open and you could be like God. And so she is there, she takes the fruit. Eve eats first, sins. And then it says, she gives some to her husband and he eats it too. Where was the husband? Look back, look, look, verse 6. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband. Who was what? With her. Right from the beginning. I'm telling you, horrible leadership. There's the man with her. Larry Crabb's got a great book called The Silence of Adam. And he talks about from the very beginning, men, man committed the sin of omission. Sin of omission. He should have stepped up. He should have led. He should have been the first one in and said, Serpent, get out of here. I'm going to stand and guard the gateway of my home. But he was with her. He watched his wife fall. And then he says, hey, I'll take some too. And so from the very beginning of the first marriage that's ever been on planet Earth, leadership for the man was a failure. First time he could have stood up and said, no, we're not bringing that into the home. And scripture says he was with her. He didn't lead. He chose not to lead. And from that point on, the rest of mankind has been impacted because of the sin of Adam. It's been imputed down to us. And every one of us has sin in our lives. The sin of imputation comes from Adam. And so here we are today. It's like, thanks a lot, huh? But the good news is this. We have a chance to live the way Christ intended us to live. We have a chance to live differently. Adam might have failed. But listen, guys, listen to me today. Men who are married and thinking about marriage, we have a chance to lead and lead well. And I believe you can with Christ's help. It begins, number one, this way. Love her and stay with her until death parts you. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Look at Matthew chapter 19. And look at verse 4. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4. These are Jesus' words. He has some really good things to say about marriage here. And we need to hear it again today. Now, I am going to speak, obviously, to those of you who, who are married. The person that you're married to today, this is for you. And for those of you who are thinking about marrying someone, this is for you. To the one that you're married to today, Jesus says this. Haven't you read? That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become what? One what? Flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but what, what? One. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not, what? That's God's intention. Listen to me. It hasn't changed. I don't care what the press says. I don't care what the internet says. I don't care what the newspapers say. It says God is intended for us to stay married to the person we're with until they breathe their last breath or until you do. That's the original intent. In fact, in Malachi chapter 2, it says it like this. It says that God hates divorce. Now listen to me. He doesn't hate the person. He hates divorce. It's not God's intent for divorce to take place. Stay with her until death parts you. Okay, for those of you who are married right now, and you're in this room, and, and you're sitting beside your wife, men, turn to your wife and say this, I will remain with you until death parts us. Turn to him and say that. All right, you're already wimping out. Look at it, you're afraid to say it. We already got cowards in the room. Come on, turn to your wife and say it. I will remain with you until death parts us. There we go. Why are you so afraid to say that? It's like, if he's not willing to say that now, you're in trouble. Why are we afraid to say truth? Or by the way, remind her of that daily. Divorce is not an option. Now, ladies, take a real good look at your hubby. Go ahead and take a look. Now, he might be like 50 pounds heavier when you first met him because all those meat and potatoes. Take a look at him. Look at him. And say, I'm in with you for the long haul, baby. Say it. Come on. There might be a lot more of him there now. But he, he's the one. Okay? He's the one. Divorce is not an option. Let me just say this, man. Let me just say it this way. Your wife will never be a free agent. Do you hear me? She's not going to be a free agent. There's not going to be a lockout. There's not going to be a trade clause. She didn't come with the trade clause. She's, she's, she's there. She will be with you, and she should be with you. There's not going to be a last-minute deal right before the trade deadline. She should never be traded. She's not a, a trading card. She's not a football card. She's not a baseball card. She's not a car that you get tired of and say, oh, I've got to trade it in and get something else. She is with you to the end. Get rid of all the trade rumors. Get rid of the word divorce in your conversation. Completely remove it from your vocabulary. It's not an option. Okay, you might say this then. Pastor Jim, she's not the same as she was when I first met her. When I met her and she was 16, my heart used to go... And she would do anything for me. I mean, when I met her when we were 18, oh, she was completely different. Now she's like telling me what to do. And, and she's like, she tell me all the stuff that, that I, she doesn't like about me. She never did that before. Do I still have to stay with her? Yes, you do. There's no trade clause here. Maybe it's just time for us to do what the Word of God says. The Word of God says this, that husbands are supposed to love their wives like Christ loves the church and gave himself up for the church. Now think about that for a second. Christ loved us even in the midst of our sin. Right now, when we choose not to, to be obedient to God, God doesn't say, I'm going to leave them and depart them because the Word of God says he will never leave us nor forsake us. So even in the midst of, of us not being obedient to God, God still loves us. God's still there. God's not leaving. The picture is the same. If she's saying things and doing things, both, goes both ways. Next week we'll address the women. But today we're talking to the men. Listen, if she's doing things and saying things, the word of God says, you still love her. Truth be known, 
He loves us even when we turn our backs on him and do things that hurt him. And the word of God says, that's the imagery that's used. Love your wife regardless. Too many say this too. I hear this often. After a while, they've been married 5, 10, 50, 60 years. I'm not sure they're the one. They're not the same as they were when I first. She isn't the same. She's like, she's a little different than she was. She's, she's a little bolder. And she says this, and she has her opinion. She never had an opinion before. That's what I liked about her. But now she's got an opinion about everything. I'm not sure she's the one anymore. I think I married the wrong person. Let me just say it this way. When you married her, whether she was 18, 20, 40, 60, or 80, she became the one. Listen to me. She became the one. Regardless of what you think now, if you think you married the wrong person, forget it. When you signed the line, it was a covenant before God, she's the one for you until you die. No options. No trade rumors. None whatsoever. You might say, well, I'm not sure she's my soulmate. Listen to me. Listen, if you're thinking about getting married and you're in this room today and there's doubt in your mind about, about her or about him, then get out. Because I'm telling you, once you say yes before God and once you sign that certificate and once you have that covenant between God, guess what? They're the one for the rest of your life. It's not the wrong person. See, you should take this seriously. But most don't. Some will say, well, I think I made a horrible mistake. And I'll say, you should have thought about that when you said, I do. Because right now you are committed to the end. He's the one, she's the one. Let me just say, there's freedom to that statement, by the way. It's not like it's like, oh, bummer. Someone said, I got another 30 years with her? Or I got another 40 years with him? Listen to me, there's freedom to that statement. You no longer have to worry if you missed out. Oh, I think it was that girl in like junior high that was yes, no, or maybe. And she said, maybe I should have taken that for a yes. <laughs> Listen to me. The one you're with is the one. You no longer have to worry. She's the one. So stop looking elsewhere, guys. Now that doesn't give you an excuse to not work hard at your marriage. In a world that is constantly trying to tear us apart with these enticing desires, the way to overcome is to settle that issue in your marriage. She's the one. He's the one. The wife that you are married to today, let me help you understand this better. The wife that you're married to today, guys, is your standard of beauty. Now, I'm going to play this out for you, help you understand this. Your wife is your standard of beauty. When you, when she was 20, she was your standard of beauty. When she became 40, she might not look like when she was 20, but when she's 40, she's your standard of beauty. When she's 60, when she's 80, when she breathes her last breath, there are no other standards. There are no other women. The woman that you're with, that you're married to, she's your standard of beauty for the rest of your life. There's freedom in that. You know why? Because I don't need to look anywhere else and say, well, compare. I don't need to compare to anybody because my wife is my standard. Let me tell you, Anne Catherine Bortner Brown is my standard of beauty. Man, she rocks. She rocked when she was 21 when I saw her on Grace Campus and she caught my eye with that Michigan State sweatshirt and she rocks when she turns 45 this week. She's my standard of beauty and I'm with her for the long haul. Now listen, listen, you should feel the same. Truth be known, Ann Catherine Brown's not your standard of beauty, men. Your wife is your standard of beauty. And when they become that standard, they know they are. Because you're not looking over here 
and you're not looking over there and you're not spending night in pornography at night dialing down this stuff and trying to see other standards. She becomes your type. She becomes your category. Settled deal. You don't even need to look anywhere and she's secure and you can see it in her face. You can see it when a woman is loved. When her husband knows that she is her standard beauty, she radiates. That's the picture. So guys, forget it. There's no options. There's no trade clauses. Love your wife the wife of your youth. Make a covenant with your eyes, Job 31.1 says, and make a covenant with your standard of beauty. Take that picture of your wife right now and say, baby, you're looking good. And that picture just moves with you. She might be older, but she is still your standard of beauty, 20, 40, 60, 80. That's your standard of beauty. I think when you nail that one down, it changes everything. Because there aren't any other comparisons. A little sidebar here, too. Now, that does not give you permission, men, for you. Because you are her standard of beauty. Now, that blows my mind. I'm Anne's standard of beauty. It just blows my mind. Wow. <laughs> and for some of you guys, it really blows my mind. <laughs> but seriously, that does not give you permission to be this fat slob. That smells like a can of B.O. I'm serious. Some of them, oh, I'm her standard of beauty, Pastor Jim said. Here I am. <laughs> That's not the case. Make yourself desirable to your wife. Ladies, same for you. We've talked about this before, but we'll talk about it again in this series. Men are visual, and it triggers hormones in them. Make yourself appealing to your man. Just don't settle. Don't settle in. I, you know, let me say it this way. I love that my wife, Ann, takes care of herself. I love that she works out, even at 45. I love watching, seeing my wife in shorts. I really do. I mean, I, I, I love just <laughs> seeing her in shorts. And I love that she takes time to work out. And part of that is not only just for me, but the Holy Spirit lives in us. The Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 6 that, that, that we house the Holy Spirit and we should give Him a good house to live in. So we should be, be people who take care that the, the God of the universe lives in us. Let's give Him a good house, clean, fit. So she takes that seriously. But I love that she takes care of herself. And I love that she'll come up to me and she'll say, Jim, how do I look? Baby, you're my standard of beauty. Let me just say this, guys. We have some work to do in that area. Because when we make a covenant with our eyes, we don't glance over here and we don't flirt over there and we don't talk about her or talk about her. Our whole mind and thoughts and actions is centered on our bride. I can tell you this. When wives know you're doing that, they just flourish. Work hard at taking care of them. Secondly, another way to, to lead well is to embrace your role as a leader. Now, let me just give you some structures in Scripture. The Bible says this. In fact, let's turn there first. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's set that up. Ephesians chapter 5. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. God's electric power company. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and look at verse 23. Ephesians 5 and verse 23. Look what it says to husbands that are in here today. Ephesians 5, 23. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the what? Church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Look back again. For the husband is the what of the wife? Head of the wife. Now, here's what that means. Some of us, we want to... Now, that doesn't mean you, you lord over them and you, you're the king of the family. I'm king, you do what I say. Bring me more food now. That's not the picture. The picture is this. this the authority structure that Christ has set up is the husband is the head over his wife. And we're talking about gently leading them and, and godly, with, with godly characteristics. He's the head. But listen, he's not the king. Scripture also says in Romans 13 that the government, we have to answer to the government. The government is authority over us. And above that is God. So think, here's how, he's not the king. The husband's not the king. And he has authority that he has to answer to. Government, the laws of the land, and God himself. And then there's the husband. So if he's telling you to do things that you shouldn't do and he wants to break the law, you can call the authorities. Authorities say, hey, you can't do that. You can go to God. He is just the head over this marriage, over this relationship. But truth be known, there's been a struggle with this from the beginning. It's part of the curse. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Let me show you what's happened. Because of the sin of Adam and because of the sin of Eve, here's what's happened. Look at Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse 16. We just saw where Adam and Eve both fell. Now they were cursed because of this. Look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. Here's the curse to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. There's not a woman who's had a child that doesn't understand that. That's part of the curse. It's like, don't you want to say, thanks a lot, Eve. I mean, that's part of the curse. But what often gets overlooked in this curse is this secondary thing. Look at it. Your desire will be for your whom? What's it say? Husband, and he will what over you? Now, if there wasn't sin, if sin never entered the world, then this wouldn't be a, there wouldn't be this curse here. Here's what that means. That means intimacy and sexual attraction that a wife should have for a husband and, and following his leadership and submitting to his leadership will bring great hardship and trouble in this relationship and the marriage from here on out. In other words, part of that curse was she wants to control she wants to lead. And so here's what she does. Here's what you'll do. You'll manipulate. You'll say, you know what? I'm not going to give you any sex for a week till I get my way. She wants to take that control back and part of that curse is the sin. Or she says, I'll give you the silent treatment. I'm just going to give you the silent treatment and I'm going to do the silent treatment till I get what I want. And so she wants to rule. She wants to be an authority. And the Bible says, no, the husband a godly husband is supposed to be an authority. And she is supposed to, to allow him to lead. Part of the curse is she constantly wants to rule over him. So what is a head? How do, give me, uh, let me explain that to you. If we're supposed to be the head, what's a head do? A head thinks. A head discerns. A head gathers information. A head takes and looks out ahead and gathers and explores. 
A head takes responsibility for the answers that come as a result of gathering and discerning information and getting input from his wife, from wise people and a multitude of counselors. It's the head makes the final decision. That's what the head is supposed to do. But here's what it looks like. Let me introduce you to Ken and Barbie. By the way, they've been together a long time, haven't they? <laughs> for many, many, many years. And she's underdressed for today's service. I apologize for that. But this is Ken and Barbie. Here's the picture. Ken and Barbie, they get married. You get married. You have this relationship. You go hand in hand. He's supposed to lead. He's leading. She gives him input. She, he asks her, what do you think? I think that's what we think. Yeah, okay, okay. All right. What do you think? Yeah. And he makes a decision. He gathers information. He's the head. This is what I think. Okay. And so they walk along. And so this is a healthy relationship. She's following along. He's leading. But here's the problem. Most relationships, the head is going. This is what it looks like. All across the world. Christian relationship. She wants him to lead. But he's nowhere to be found. And part of the problem, he needs to get his head out of his butt. That's part of the problem. And so what happens is she starts leading because he is quiet like Adam was. He should be saying something and he has the sin of omission. He's silent. And so she says, I'm not letting that happen again. I'll leave. Let me tell you, church, this isn't what Christ designed for a marriage relationship. But part of the problem is women are screaming for leadership and men have acquiesced to doing nothing. It's not uncommon. Our kids need to go to church. So what's she do? I'll take them to church. Our kids are sick. You know what happens? Kids are sick. Mom stays home with the kids. Instead of dad staying home and mom going. And so we have this, this shift in leadership. And what really needs to happen is he needs to put his head back on and start leading. But what is wrong in our world is his head is somewhere else. And he's supposed to be leading his family. God said we're supposed to be the head. We have authority over this relationship, but we're answered to, we have to answer to the government and we have to answer to God. But men are nowhere to be seen in a lot of relationships. We need to put Jesus back at the center of our relationships. We need to make Jesus the object of worship. Worship the creator, not to create anything. Now, here's some problems. Some of us get in these relationships and we worship our wives. Oh, I just love her so much and I want to just worship her. And whatever you want, baby, let's do. And so what happens, we worship a created thing instead of the creator of the created thing. And God says, anything that replaces me is an idol. In some relationships, men do everything for their wives and they, they serve their wives to the point where they worship their wives. That's not healthy either. We should never worship a created thing. We're supposed to worship the creator of the created things. And anytime you worship something that's not the creator, it becomes an idol. By the way, I've rarely have ever met, in fact, I can't think of I've ever sat in a counseling session or talked to a woman who was a Christian woman who desperately loved Jesus Christ who said, boy, I just wish my husband wasn't a spiritual leader. 
You know what I hear all the time? I just wish he would step up to the plate. I wish he would slide up that triangle a little farther, become more like God. I wish he would get his head out of his butt and start leading. And you know what? Most women would, would follow that if they're becoming more like Christ. Husbands were also called to protect our wives. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Look at verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. Paul gives this, this truth that's written to Timothy, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. He says, If anyone, including husbands, does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his what? Immediate what? Family. He has, listen, denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. One translation of King James has, worse than an infidel. In other words, if you're not providing for your family, you're an infidel. You're worse than infidel. That means you're, don't, you're not even a Christ follower. You, you, the Christ followers, you shouldn't even belong in the family of God. You're worse than an infidel. What's that mean, by the way? Here's what that means. That means you go get a job. That means you provide for your wife. That means you go out and you make sure that your family is provided for. And you know what the curse was for men? If you look at Genesis chapter 3, right after, after the women there, you know what the curse of man was? It says that the land that he would work would be toilsome. That would be hard labor. That means your job would be difficult. And it's like anytime something's hard, if it seems like we want to pull away from it. It says work will be hard for you. In other words, if you're unemployed right now, that means you might have to stand eight hours a day, stand in front of that employer and say, hire me, hire me. That means you might have to write resumes till you get crippled in your hand. That means you might have to go on the internet and search. That means you provide. It's hard, it's difficult, but God wants you to be the provider of your family. So you might not like that. Well, Pastor Jim, it's hard, it's difficult. Listen, I didn't say it, God said it. And then Paul includes it in the New Testament that we're supposed to provide. If you don't provide for your family, if you're saying, honey, you need to provide for us. I'm going to stay home and play PS3 and watch reruns of North Dakota State on ESPN Classic. That's not the picture. You're supposed to provide. So are you providing for your wife? Luke chapter 6 and verse 32 gives us a picture of what kind of love we're supposed to show. It says, that it's, diff it's easy to love someone who returns that love to you. But in Luke chapter 6 and verse 32 and 33, it said it's more difficult to love someone who doesn't show love back to you. The real test of your love as a leader is that when you love your wife, even when she's not showing it back to you, that means you're standing and fighting for that marriage, even if she's run away. That means you're saying, I'm going to stand and fight. I'm going to send her texts. I'm going to send her emails. And I'm going to stand up and she's going to know to the end, even if she decides to go somewhere else, that I was there and I was willing to make this work. That's the picture of New Testament love. A leader takes responsibility in his marriage. Now, let me explain that to you. Okay, your wife does something. Maybe she, she does something that's sinful. Maybe she spends too much money and you got people calling your house. Or maybe your child does something that's, that's, that your child would actually sin. I know that's hard to imagine. Imagine your kid sinning. Imagine that. It's hard to imagine. I know it's difficult for many of you. They sin. 
the Word of God says man is supposed to take responsibility. He's not the blame for it, but he takes responsibility. So he steps in, in front. He's the guard to the, the gateposts and the door frames of his home. He says, you know what, honey? That was wrong, and you need to deal with it between you and God. But you know what? I'm going to bear responsibility for our family. He doesn't say, hey, you did it. You worked that one out. He fights for her. He stands and defends for her. He defends for his son and his daughters when they've done things that are wrong. And their children know that they can go to their dad, and even in the midst of doing something horrible, they still know they can go to their father even when they've screwed up. And that, yes, there will be some consequences, but he will do whatever he can and he'll take responsibility for that mess and make it the way that Christ wants it. That's being responsible. It's part of our role. Now, let me explain that to you, why that is. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Well, I'm back in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Let me explain what that means. And why I believe that. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Look what it says here. It says, husbands, in the same way, be what? What's it say? Consider it as you live with your wives. And treat them with what? Respect as the what partner? Weaker partner. And as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will what your prayers. Okay, look back again. This is, this is good. You should have this underlined as husbands. Husbands, in the same way, be, what's the word? Consider it to your wives. What's that mean? Like, that sounds like a really good thing to do, doesn't it? What's it mean? The word consider it means to have a kindly awareness or regard for another's feelings and circumstances. So the scripture tells us this, that the wife is the weaker partner. Now listen, that doesn't mean she's weaker spiritually. That doesn't mean she's weaker emotionally. That means she's weaker. The context is physical. That means you should be able to bench press her. You should be stronger. She's weaker physically. I heard this weekend a great analogy regarding uh, men and women and the difference here. Let me explain it to you. Men are like thermoses, and women are like goblets. Now think about this. Men can take a lot of hits. I mean, I've had this even when I was in construction. When I built new homes, was self-employed, built new houses for 10 years. I've had these things over 20 years old, 25 years old. I mean, it's got some dents. I mean, it's fallen from second story, but you know what? It still works. It can take hits. Men can take hits. You could, you could have men going at each other, bearing at each other in a game, just nailing each other in a football game, and afterwards they tap each other in the butt and say, good game. And so men can take hits. They can drop it. And even when I brought it this morning in my backpack, it was like, I don't have to worry about it. But women, it says, look, it's still tick, 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 uh, licking and it's going to keep on ticking. Now listen, the Bible says that women are like goblets. Now when I loaded this up in my backpack this morning, I took this cloth and wrapped around it three times. Because I knew when I stuck it in the backpack that the potential was if this thermos hit against this, that it would shatter this. And the Word of God says, women, they can't take the beating that we can take. It says that we're supposed to treat them in a considerable way. Considerate way. In other words, treat them. Guys, let me ask, is this how you treat your wife? 
supposed to be kind to them. And our words aren't supposed to be harsh because they can't take what we can take. And it says we're supposed to gently hold them. And when, and when we see them, we make sure that we protect them because they're not as strong as we are. The problem is this. We don't treat them like this. We talk to them like we do our buddies. We treat them like we do men. And if you work too hard at it, you can shatter them. The word of God says, men, husbands, love your wives in a considerate way as Christ wants you to. And it says, if you don't. Okay, look, 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 look. I'm not making this up. This isn't Jim's. This is the word of God. If you don't, when you pray, your prayers will be what? Hindered. Here's what that means. I see it happen over and over and over again. I see these marriages that are on the rocks. They're messed up. I see this husband who's crying out and praying for his wife. He's crying out, God, save us. God, this is, there's, we need, you need to take care of this, Lord. We got this problem. We got this trouble. We got this trial. And, and the word of God says, if you're not being considerate to your wife and caring for her, when you go to pray to him, guess what happens? God looks down and says, not a fat chance in the world. Am I going to answer that prayer? So here's what happens. Your family suffers because of your life. All over this auditorium and all over our world are marriages that are suffering because one husband is not gently caring for his wife. And his kids suffer, his wife suffers, their business suffers, everything suffers because he's not leading, he's not loving, and he's asking God, God, how come that family over there, how come they have this, and God, how come that family has that, and how come that marriage has that, and how come this and that? And truth be known, the reason is it's because of him. Guys, don't overlook 1 Peter 3, 7. You become a ceiling towel between you and God and the breakthrough for your family if you don't treat your wives well. So how do, how do we fail there? Well, harsh words. We come home, we're grumpy. And that's the picture. And then we go to God. Oh, Lord, I got this bill. God, I need this breakthrough in my life. I have this, this thing in my life. I'm, would you help me, God? And God, give me a better job. God, God, release me of this. And meanwhile, there's this sin in your life, and you're wondering, where's God at? I don't hear him. I don't see him. It's because there's sin in your life. Men default one of two ways. This weekend, we took a group of men on a men's retreat to Edward Forrest, and we talked about real men issues. And you can talk differently with men than you can with women. And while we were there, we heard incredible teaching on the ways men default in their leadership. Men do one of two things. They either become a coward or they become a chauvinist. And so you're either default to one of two areas when you're in sin. You'll be a coward or you'll be a chauvinist. And out of that comes poor leadership. And the word of God says in order for us 
to be a biblical and godly leader, we got to become more Christ-like. We got to be pursuing him. And when we're not pursuing him, out of that comes these two styles of leadership. Listen to these. The first is chauvinism. You'll see it all over. I see it all the time. Let me give you some metaphors of some names of men that are chauvinists. First one is this, no sissy stuff, Sam. This, this leader thinks that man is the opposite of woman. That if a woman kisses their kids, he would never kiss the kids. If a woman hugs their kids, he would never hug the kids. If a woman says, I love you, he would dare not say, I love you. And some of you have been brought through those families where your dad never said, I love you. And that's the model you saw. You, you, he, he was a no sissy stuff Sam kind of leader. They think this. You, you, you know men like this. They, men, they think that the man that belches the loudest, spits the farthest, punches the hardest, or farts the loudest is a man. That's what they think. Listen to me. That's not a man. That's not a man. Truth be known, men and women are both creating the image of God. It tells us that in, in Genesis 1.28. And it says that we both have emotions and that we have the emotions of God we're creating his likeness and image and that we both have emotion and it's okay to cry and it's okay to hug and it's okay to say I love you. Listen, we're not the opposite of women. Seriously, do you really think any single girl ever goes to God who's thinking about marriage and praises, dear God, give me the man that belches the loudest, hits the hardest and, 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 and smells the worst. God, give me him in Jesus' name, amen. Do you really think that? Yes, some men out there who are chauvinists think that's the way the man should lead. The next man that's a chauvinist, the metaphor is this, success and status steward. He has this jock mentality. Everything is related to victories, sales, companies. He can get some more cars and he can build these orphanages and he has this savings and he's, he's working his way up the CEO ladder and they give, they, 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 constant, they see their wives just as another trophy that they can, they want her to look pretty and keep quiet. And so they have the success and st status to her. That's not leadership, man. That's chauvinism. Then you have the man, you call him, give him hell, Hank. He's angry. He's violent. He has a temper. I mean, his fuse is that short. He says harsh words. He's intimidating and scary as a dad and as a husband. And right now, he's whispering to his wife, hey, we're not talking about this after the service. Don't dare think that we're going there. He intimidates with his words and his actions. He rules with his looks, and his kids are afraid of him. And maybe you're even that... Give him hell, Hank, that you've hit the wall with your fist and throughout your house you have these drywall spots because you've been angry and you want the family to see it, that you rule with an iron fist. And you have all these children and a wife that's in a coward position because of some man who thinks that's the way a man should lead. If you're this guy and you're in this auditorium, you're an idiot. No, it's not funny, you are. If you think that's the way you should lead your family, I heard guys say this weekend, you're an imbecile. That's not a godly leader. That's not the way God designed men to lead. If you're touching your wife and you're threatening your wife with your words, and you've ever, ladies, if you've ever been touched by a man in a, in a, a harmful way, if he's ever struck you, listen to me, he's not God. He's not the king. There's authority. Of, you call the police. You call Grace Community Church. You get out of that home. And I mean that. 
See, but here's the problem. Here's the problem. There's these men out there. And they, they drop out of these marriages, and rightly so. You should run from that if he's abusive to you. And they prey on these single moms. And they prey on these, these single, single again ladies. Because these single again ladies, they're living in poverty with kids because some man left them. And this guy knows, and he goes in and he intimidates, and he, he shows up and he starts bullying her around. That's not love, that's sin. Listen to me, ladies. If someone touches you and harms you, get out. Or how about I'm the boss, Bob? He thinks he's the king. All of us have worked with this guy. He barks orders to everyone when he's not even in charge. He tells you how to do it. He can do it better. He tells the kids how to do it. He barks orders from the couch. Get me this, get me that. He barks orders to his wife. He can't keep a job because he wants to be in charge. No one can stand him. He wants authority, but he, he, he would never sit under authority. And so he takes his family from church to church to church, five or six churches, and he, he wants to be in charge. He goes to the pastor and he says, hey, put me in charge. I'm a leader. He takes money and, 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 and he, he uses it for his power and his kids suffer from it. You know what he ought to be put in charge of? Just shutting up. And then you have the other extreme, the cowards. And some of you fall into this category. Little boy Larry, he's a sweetheart. I mean, everyone loves him. He's 20, 30 years old, and he's on his 12th year, his undergraduate degree. And he works part-time at Little Caesars. And he lives at home, and his mom still packs his lunch, and he gets in his pinto every day and puts a little Caesar sign on top, and he goes and delivers pizzas. And he wants to meet a woman who has a job and has a house and marry her. He wants to be the stay-at-home dad because he really likes kids, because he is a little kid. And he doesn't have a job that could ever support him or a wife. And he sits at home all day downstairs with his PS3 or his Android phone downloading apps and playing Angry Birds. But you know what? Women are attracted to these kind of guys because it's not a healthy attraction. They go to them and they're attracted to them as a, a mother is to an orphan. It's like, oh, I need to take care of him. Let me change his diaper. Oh, he needs help. <laughs> Listen to me, ladies. Run from this man. That's not the biblical example of what it means to lead. Run from him. Then you have sturdy Oak Owen. He pays the bills. He puts a roof over the house. He's physically present, but he's emotionally comatose. He would never dare get, ask his wife anything that was below surface. So he comes home, he works all day, and, and, and his wife says, you're never here. I'm here every day. I pay the bills. I go to work. And he sits in his remote control, and he falls asleep at 8 o'clock at night, wakes back up, does the same thing. He never connects with his kid on an emotional level. He never goes below surface, but he's sturdy out. He's safe. He's not generous. He's tight. All his investments are... are 2% interest that, that you always get it on. He would never take a risk. He's not, he never gives away stuff. He's safe and he's steady and, and he's sturdy. That's not the kind of leader that God's looking for. Then you have hyper-spiritual Henry. This guy's just weird. I mean, this is the guy that wants everyone to know that he understands sublapsarianism. There's like four people to understand that, but he wants to let you know that he understands it. 
And he's, the things he speaks about God is just kind of like spooky metaphorical terms. Have you ever met him? It's like you go out with him and you're out with their family and say, wow, look at the leaf. God is in that leaf. Look at it. See that cloud over there? God is just moving in that cloud. He's, he's the guy that takes his family to lunch after church every Sunday. And the waitress comes out and asks if they want more bread. He says, bread? You know the bread of life? The bread of life's in me. And the waitress looks like, whoa, what bread of life? Yeah, and I eat the bread of life. And you can have the bread of life too. And you can eat the bread and you can eat me. And it's like... And meanwhile, the 15-year-old son's under the table taking a napkin, tying it around his throat and trying to hang himself. <laughs> it's just weird. He's spooky. He's, 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 he, he's not in touch with reality. His kids are embarrassed. They would never take anyone home. And, and when they do come home, they prep them and say, my dad's weird, okay? Just let him go. <laughs> then you have good time Gary. He's the life of the party. He's funny, he's witty. Everyone loves him, but no one respects him. He's not the leader. No one's following him. And eventually his wife just gets annoyed with him and he's not cute anymore. You see, guys, hear me today. It's pretty simple. We're supposed to lead, be the head of the family. We're supposed to gently be care for our wives in a considerate way. We're supposed to become more like Christ so that together we grow closer together. We're supposed to make our wives the standard of beauty. We're supposed to say, when I married you, you're the one. We're supposed to lead and be the scout and be the first one in and take responsibility. That's a spiritual leader as a husband. God help us today. I pray, God, that we would take that role. God, I pray for repentance in this group today. Pray that your spirit would move in our hearts. And I pray that men would go back and say they were sorry if need be. God, I want to affirm those that are doing it well. Pray, God, that they would press on. But Jesus, my desire is this, that as we lead and as we become the head of this family, that we would do it in such a way that it would please you. Help us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next week. God bless you.